Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In late February of 1976, Courtney Burr III entered the apartment of his lover, Sal Minio, fighting back tears. What had been a happy home only weeks earlier was now a crime scene. It had been picked over by police officers, gossip mongers, and Sal's own family. Courtney bent down and looked through the scattered mounds of books and screenplays. Sal loved to read. Courtney suppressed a sob and moved to the bathroom. Inside the tub lay a pile of ashes. Courtney sat on the floor and put his face in his hands. They'd really done it. The Minios hadn't just burned any books they deemed to be scandalous. They'd gotten rid of Sal's love letters, too. Courtney tried to quiet the tides of grief and anger swirling inside him, but the effort only made him sick. He stood up and walked to the bedroom closet. Inside was Sal's favorite leather jacket. It still smelled like him. Courtney put it on and walked out of the apartment. He never went back. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. In part one, we will introduce you to the victims, the mystery of their deaths, and the initial steps investigators took towards finding their killer. In part two... We'll take you through all the dramatic twists and turns of the investigation and finally reveal how the suspect was caught and the murder was solved. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Sal Minio, an Academy Award-nominated actor best known for his role as Plato in the film Rebel Without a Cause. In part one, we tracked Sal's teenage fame, his bisexual awakening, and his tragic murder. In part two, we'll discuss the tumultuous investigation that followed his death. We'll cover the assumptions and prejudices that led detectives astray, as well as the final break in the case that eventually allowed police to capture the perpetrator. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Around 9.30 p.m. on Thursday, February 12th, 1976, Sal Minio returned home after a rehearsal for his latest play, P.S. Your Cat is Dead. As the actor walked from the garage to his apartment complex, he was attacked and stabbed in the heart. After Sal screamed, his assailant fled. Raymond Evans, another resident in the apartment complex, found Sal bleeding on the ground. Ray attempted to save him, but by the time police arrived, Sal was dead. I need help here! Blood everywhere. Is it coming from his head? I think so. Turn him over so I can get the jacket off. It's not his head. It's his chest. It's a nasty-looking wound. Starting resuscitation. Paramedics from Los Angeles Fire Rescue Unit 7 performed CPR on Sal, but were unable to revive him. He was pronounced dead at 9.55 p.m. LAPD Detective Sergeant Pia took charge of the case and spoke to several of Sal's neighbors who claimed to see the attacker flee the scene. Now, you're sure you saw the assailant, Mr. Gustafson? Sure did. Ran out here like a bat out of hell. Did you get a good look at him? Sure did. Ugly fella. White guy with a blondish hair. And what exactly do you mean by blondish? You know, um, not really yellow, uh, kind of dark in spots. Like dirty blonde? Sure. Uh, that's it. It, uh, might have been brown. It was kind of dark. Excuse me, officer. Are you taking witness statements? I saw the guy, too, but I've got a roast in the oven. I'll be with you in a moment, Mr... Uh, Hughes! Look, I really can't wait. Can you just write down that I saw an Italian guy running away? Uh, how can you be sure he was Italian? I don't know. He, he might have been Mexican, but he definitely ran into a yellow Toyota parked right over there. He jumped inside and it sped away real quick. Headlights off. Multiple residents of the complex claimed to have seen a white male running down the alleyway towards a yellow car. With the preliminary questioning completed, officers turned their attention back to the crime scene. With all the commotion following the murder, the scene had been compromised. There were bloody footprints everywhere, smears that rapidly turned dark brown. It looked as if the memory of the murder would forever be scorched into the pavement. Authorities searched Sal's body and found $21 in his jacket, along with a pocket watch and a chain. He also had a white metal ring on his left hand. Considering the petty cash and valuables, detectives tentatively ruled out robbery as the motive. The fact that Sal was famous suggested it was some kind of targeted attack. Upon initial inspection, there looked to be only a single knife wound. Some officers believed it to be a highly efficient hit, carried out by someone who knew what they were doing. 
Their suspicions were further flamed after they entered Sal's apartment. Take a look at this dump. Huh, some star this guy was. We got ourselves a bookworm. Quite a beefcake there on the cover. Not what I would call light reading. What the hell is this? Looks like some kind of sex manual for gay men. The plot thickens. Officers took one look at the LGBT reading material in Sal's apartment, along with a leather vest they found in his closet, and assumed his sexuality was connected to the murder. Detectives immediately speculated that the culprit was either a male sex worker or a jilted lover. At the time, Sal's bisexuality was seen as scandalous. Gay men were often labeled as highly promiscuous, drug-addicted, or mentally unstable. So when officers found Sal's little red book, filled with the actor's personal contacts and prospective lovers, they figured the killer's name was inside. Authorities wasted little time reaching out to Sal's friends, working through the night. Sometime after 2 a.m. the morning after he was killed, authorities got into contact with Sal's friend, Christine Clark. Sure I can't get you a cup of coffee, detective. Yeah, I've had plenty. Now, you had dinner with Sal about three weeks back, correct? Yeah, at the Cock and Bull with Michael Kaplan. He was so full of life. I can't believe he's gone. Did Sal do anything out of the ordinary at dinner? Did he seem stressed? Not more than usual. You don't have any idea who could have done this, or why? No. I know that Sal knows a lot of people. And not all of them are what you would call fine, upstanding citizens. He had secrets. Many of Sal's friends, acquaintances, and hangers-on hinted about similar skeletons in his closet. That first night, police had difficulty uncovering exactly what they meant. But they never had to look too hard for Hollywood gossip. Around 9 a.m. on February 13th, Detectives struck gold when they interviewed a chatty publicist at a studio Sal had worked for. You guys need the dirt on Sal, I came to deliver. You know who killed him? No. As far as I knew, he didn't have any enemies. But he did have money troubles and a lot of debt. I see. Anything else? He did coke, smoked weed, not too much, but he was no slouch. Did he do anything harder? What, like heroin? No way. He wasn't stupid. If anything, he was too smart for his own good. Why do you say that? Sal liked to play mind games, especially with his lovers. He wasn't happy unless everyone was wrapped around his little finger. And maybe someone got tired of being jerked around. Your words, not mine. It had been less than a day since Salminia was killed. But already, detectives could tell the investigation wasn't going to be easy. There was more to Salminio than met the eye. When we return, the investigation flounders and police grow desperate for answers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After actor Salminia was stabbed on February 12, 1976, authorities worked through the night to track down his killer. By the next day, police determined that Sal lived a secret life the tabloids knew nothing about, but they hadn't found anyone who wanted him dead. Detectives continued to delve deeper into Sal's private life by dusting his apartment for prints. Meanwhile, the autopsy report came in. Dr. Bertone, thank you for joining me. What were your findings? Victim died of a hemorrhage originating from a single stab wound that pierced his heart. The wound was triangular, most likely from a relatively large single-edged blade. A switchblade? More likely a hunting knife. My opinion is that the murderer was right-handed and about the victim's height. I see. Anything else significant? There were some clothing fibers in the wound but we don't yet have a match for them. There are signs that the victim had an injection of some kind within the last few days. Drugs? It's possible, though the injections are intramuscular. There were no signs of recent drug use on the talk screen. Armed with this additional information about the attacker, detectives combed through the police reports made on February 12th. There was a robbery committed near Sal's apartment, but the suspects were two black males. Nothing matched the testimony from Sal's neighbors, who claimed the attacker was a white male with a yellow car. They did, however, manage to eliminate some possibilities. After speaking to Sal's friends, investigators determined that the injection sites found during the autopsy were from an innocent doctor's visit. Sal wasn't the drug fiend they suspected him to be. Now, authorities had to determine who he really was. They were practically still at square one by February 17th, the day Sal's funeral was held in New York. Local detectives attended in collaboration with the LAPD on the lookout for anything unusual. Unfortunately, authorities didn't mark any of the onlookers or family members as suspicious. Most had already been cleared, as they had solid alibis on the East Coast, thousands of miles away from Sunset Boulevard. Even so, the wake was not without its tense encounters. Sal's family was completely unaware of his bisexuality before the police investigation. They didn't want news about the scandalous things detectives found in his apartment to be leaked. Though they hardly knew Sal towards the end of his life, They were determined to control the narrative after his death. But his legacy wasn't their only concern. As Sal's friend and former lover Michael Mason learned when he spoke to Sal's brother, Victor, at the funeral. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. You were one of my brother's friends, right? Did you know him well? I knew him intimately. I see. Well... Maybe you could tell me, do you know if Sal ever invested money? We're trying to sort out Sal's will, and we want my mother to be well taken care of. It's too bad you didn't know him well enough to find these answers yourself. He had nothing, especially not for you. 
In the end, Sal's family had to face the fact that he didn't leave behind any secret windfall. They reacted to the truth with anger, and they took out their frustrations on anyone who was truly close to Sal. To them, Sal's friends and lovers corrupted him and turned him away from his family. Sal's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Courtney Burr III, bore the brunt of the Minio's hostility. While the Minios treated him with outward respect during the ceremony, it was obvious that they disapproved of him. After the funeral, Courtney flew to Florida to stay with a friend. He asked an acquaintance to house-sit his Manhattan apartment while he was gone. The very next night, February 18th, he got a frightening telephone call. Courtney, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. What's wrong? Do you know what time it is? Someone came here to your place. They almost killed me. Wait, who did? Are you all right? Some thug smashed a vase over my head. Oh my god. Did they did they say anything? Yeah, they said don't write a book. Been took off. I think they thought I was you. <sighs> Damn Minios. Courtney never found out who visited his apartment that night but he suspected that the Minios had hired someone to intimidate him in case he planned on making his relationship with Sal public knowledge. Courtney wasn't planning on going to the press, but plenty of people in Los Angeles were happy to air out the actor's dirty laundry. A few days later, a slew of articles about Sal's so-called double life appeared in the papers. The press only wanted to talk about Sal's sexuality and his turbulent love life, to the detriment of the murder investigation. The more his friends shared their wild stories and dubious anecdotes, the more authorities were distracted by the drama of Sal's life and his fame. In the midst of these exposés, the police learned a lot of juicy gossip, but they still couldn't even assign a likely motive to the killer. They grew desperate for a real lead. So when 19-year-old convicted thief Lionel Ray Williams told police he wanted to speak to them about the night Sal Minio was stabbed, they listened. All right, Mr. Williams, let's hear what you have to say. I overheard some blood dudes talking about killing that actor, uh, Sal Minio. <laughs> they said they were doing a deal when things went bad. A drug deal? That's what I heard. We found no evidence of drugs at the scene. Why are you coming forward now? Because I'm a responsible citizen. Looks like you were arrested about two weeks after Selminio's murder. So what? So maybe you were out on the streets that night, cruising around Sunset Boulevard. I was with my mama that night. You can ask her. Oh, trust me, we will. But before we do, maybe there's something else you'd like to share with us. Perhaps the names of the people you overheard. I don't know their names because I'm not in a gang. I'm not involved in this. I'm just doing you a favor. We certainly appreciate it, Mr. Williams. We'll be in touch. Williams' sudden announcement took investigators by surprise. The 19-year-old had just finished serving time for armed robbery when he pulled a deputy aside, claiming he had inside information about the murder. Even more confusing was the fact that detectives found no evidence to corroborate Williams' statements. There was no sign that Sal associated with gang members, and there was no activity of that kind in the area. 
Officers suspected that Williams had actually been involved in Sal's murder and was trying to throw them off the scent. Police questioned Williams' mother, who swore he was with her the night of the stabbing. Authorities put Williams under surveillance for a few days, but they never caught him doing anything unusual. Considering it a dead lead, they dropped their suspicions and moved on. It felt like the trail had gone cold. In search of a new direction, officers canvassed the gay bars Sal was known to peruse, pulled his phone records, and listened to the messages on his answering machine. But none of it bore fruit. No one thought Sal had any enemies. By May of 1976, three months after the murder, authorities were so desperate that they began doubting everything they thought they knew. They widened their search from a white man to look for a man of indeterminate race. They even attempted to hypnotize one of the neighbors who heard the murder occur. Just listen to the sound of my voice and breathe deeply. (sighs) Good. Now, what do you remember about the night of February 12th? I remember his scream. It was so awful. He needed help. Good. Now think deeper. Do you hear the murderer's voice? No. It's just Sal Minio. I could tell when he fell down, there was a crack. Are you sure you didn't catch a glimpse of the man as he fled the scene? No. I can hear his footsteps. They're frantic, like he was surprised by what he did. I have a feeling that somebody freaked out one night and did something crazy. Maybe anybody could have been a target that night. Police were beginning to suspect the same thing. Because of Sal's star power and sordid secret life, they had initially assumed Sal knew his attacker. But after months of searching in vain for anyone who wanted Salminio dead, they wondered if they were wrong. Had it all been a random attack? And if so, how would they ever catch the person responsible? It took almost a year for any more progress to be made. At first, the wait was understandable to Sal's family and friends. None of them had any idea who would want Sal dead either. The police had to take their time and sort through all the possible leads. But by 1977, tempers were frayed on all sides. Authorities couldn't name a single possible suspect, and Sal's loved ones were exasperated. They answered the same questions again and again. They relived the same agonizing memories repeatedly. But all of it seemed to be for nothing. By the anniversary of Sal's death, most of his friends had given up hope that the culprit would ever be caught. Several of those closest to Sal just wanted to move on. But there were still a few fighters left in his corner, like his friend Elliot Mintz, an aspiring journalist with a penchant for conspiracy theories. Mintz held a press conference on February 12, 1977, hoping to reignite public interest in Sal's case. Thank you all for coming. Sal was my best friend for 13 years. It's the anniversary of his murder today. I'm currently collecting donations and want to offer a reward for any information leading to the capture of Sal's murderer. Do you have any suspicions you want the police to pursue? The authorities have heard what I have to say. I'm urging anyone else out there, if you have information about Sal's killer, please come forward. 
Is there anything you'd like to say to Mr. Minio's killer? If you're out there, we will find you. You will face justice. That's all. Mince did all he could to seek justice for his friend, but his pleas fell on deaf ears. He solicited Sal's wealthy network of friends and acquaintances for donations, hoping to offer a $10,000 reward to anyone who came forward, but after weeks of trying, he only managed to collect a few hundred dollars. The press and the compassion of Sal's well-wishers appeared to have moved on. Mintz felt practically alone. Only months before, the public had been up in arms. There were floods of articles and public statements about how Sal had been taken too soon, how he'd been robbed of a chance to show the world what a great, mature performer he really was. Now, it was like people couldn't forget him fast enough. It was a microcosm of the fame Sal had experienced when he was alive. For a few moments, everything was all about him. Then, all of a sudden, the crowd moved on. Mintz's press conference failed to dredge up any leads and the investigation stalled. By that point, detectives were essentially praying that a clue would suddenly fall out of the sky. Then, miraculously, it did. In April of 1977, a new informant came forward, one who changed everything. Coming up, detectives close in on Sal Minio's murderer. And now, back to the story. By April of 1977, the LAPD had been investigating the murder of 37-year-old actor Sal Minio for over a year. They'd interviewed dozens of friends, family, and associates, but still had no idea who could have wanted Sal dead or why. Then on April 26th, a young woman named Teresa Williams came forward to the deputy district attorney. She claimed she had important information about the case. All right, Miss Williams, what can you tell us about the murder of Salminio? First, I need to know that I'll be protected. Protected from whom? From the killer. So you know who did it? Yes, but I'm not saying another word until you guarantee I'll be safe. I promise you, Miss Williams, we'll protect you. <sighs> okay, it was my husband, Lionel Williams. He killed that actor. Lionel told you this? He bragged about it. I could see you've been shouldering an enormous burden. Can you tell us where Lionel is now? He's in jail in Michigan. That's why I came to you. You can't let him out. There's something wrong with him. He's dangerous. Teresa had been living in fear of her husband for years. After being arrested on a solicitation charge, she finally decided to turn on him in exchange for immunity. She told police that the night Sal died... Williams had gone out looking for money to pay off his new car. Teresa didn't want any part of it and decided to stay home that night, where the two of them lived with Williams' mother. Hours after he left the house, Williams returned covered in blood. I got into it tonight, baby. I don't want to know. I just stabbed a dude. What dude? Why? Some young-looking white guy in Hollywood. I was hiding out, waiting to rob someone. He came around the corner and BAM! I got him. 
<laughs> Sucker started screaming, so I boogied out of there. <sighs> Didn't even get any money. How can you be smiling like that? You're gonna bring the police right to our doorstep. Mind what you say. If the cops show up, you're gonna tell them I was here with you all night watching TV. Isn't that right? Of course. Good. Hey, Mama! Turn the channel. I want to see if I made the news. Investigators were skeptical of Teresa's story at first. After all, she was clearly trying to avoid jail time for solicitation. And Lionel Williams was a black man. Multiple witnesses at the scene had described a white male fleeing the scene. On the other hand, Teresa mentioned that Williams was borrowing a friend's tan Dodge Colt that night, which was close to the yellow car victims described. And Williams had already been on the investigator's watch list. Months earlier, he told police that gang members were responsible for Sal's death. He claimed to have overheard some blood dudes discussing the murder in prison. What's more, Teresa was able to describe the murder weapon in detail. The medical examiner found a similar knife and tried it against a plaster cast of Sal's wound. It slid in perfectly. Teresa claimed that she'd washed her husband's clothes after he came home. When Williams learned his victim was a famous actor, he was reportedly elated. <laughs> you see that, Mama? Your son's famous! What have you done, Lionel? You too, huh? You think this guy didn't deserve it? He was a big-time actor. He probably burnt more money in a month than you've seen in your whole life. I'm not gonna feel sorry for him. Have some respect! Where did I go wrong? May God have mercy on you. Teresa! Come here! What do you want, Lionel? Get Mama some food and crush up her sleeping pills in there. She'll be fine in the morning. <laughs> Just hush, Mama. Teresa's gonna get you some supper. Teresa told police she drugged William's mother with sleeping pills at his direction. In the morning, Williams convinced Teresa and his mother to lie to the police, establishing a fake alibi for himself a few weeks later. Teresa's testimony was compelling and fit with some of the facts police knew, but it also meant that the murder had essentially been random. Sal's salacious private life, the secret drug use and sex the detectives had been fixated on for over a year was nothing but a red herring. The idea didn't sit well with some officers. Teresa's credibility was stretched even further when she told detectives that William's behavior became erratic after he killed Sal. One day in March 1976, Teresa was chatting with her friend, 16-year-old Lasonia Armstrong, in the kitchen. Out of nowhere, Williams barged in, clearly on some kind of drugs, and frightened them both. Check this out! Jesus, Lionel! What's wrong with you? Take a look at this knife. It's the one that killed that actor, Salminio. Bullshit. He's telling the truth. If you're for real, then you should get that thing out of here. It's evidence. I can't dump it now. I need it. For what? To speak to him. We can use it to talk to Sal. Williams led the ladies into the living room and goaded them into holding a seance to speak to the spirit of Sal Minio. 
There's a little man running around in my head. I gotta get rid of him. I don't know about this, Lionel. Shh. Take my hand. Everyone close your eyes. Salminio. I'm Lionel Williams, the man that killed you. I'm here for your forgiveness. Can you hear it? I don't hear a damn thing. Shh. It's him. He's whispering. No. Man, I didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. I didn't know it was you. What's that? Lionel! He wants us to take off our clothes. Sal wants us to get naked in his honor. You've got to be kidding me. Sal, no! They were trying to take my Buick. I needed the scratch. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. You're really freaking me out, Lionel. It's okay now. Sal has forgiven me. He wants me to live for him. He wants us all to get naked and be together. After suggesting the three of them have an orgy, Williams fell asleep, probably due to the effects of whatever drugs he was taking. Sometime later, he woke up and became enraged upon learning that Armstrong had left. He held a knife to Teresa's throat and made her call Armstrong back. Williams continued to torment his wife until Armstrong returned. Then he pushed Teresa out of the room and berated the 16-year-old girl for at least 10 minutes. Armstrong pleaded for her life, and eventually Williams ran from the house in a craze. Teresa entered the room to find Armstrong stripped to her bra and panties. Within the hour, Williams returned, looking sedated and contrite. He apologized to Armstrong, shut himself in a closet, and went to sleep. Detectives didn't know exactly what to make of Teresa's testimony. As confusing as it was, it seemed unlikely that Teresa would make up such a strange tale. She passed a polygraph, so Armstrong was called in for questioning. She corroborated the entire story. Authorities were confident that if Teresa testified, they'd have Williams nailed, but they didn't have any hard evidence. The knife in question was long gone, and witnesses' statements clearly implicated a white male for the killing. Police believe that a white man had run through the alley directly after Williams by coincidence. All of Sal's neighbors had seen him rather than the real killer. But a good defense attorney would have no problem poking holes in that theory. In addition, it was clear from Teresa's account that Williams had some kind of power over her. She was afraid of him and officers worried he would cow her into invoking spousal privilege to avoid testifying. So, with Williams in a Michigan prison on an unrelated charge, investigators decided to take their time and wait things out. He was a known trash talker, and they hoped that he would be compelled to boast about his crime once more inside. Authorities wired the visiting rooms at Williams' prison and listened in on his phone calls. Months passed with the bugs turning up nothing. Then at last, detectives struck gold. You know, I killed a honky a while back. Oh yeah? Who? That actor, Salminio. You're conning me. I'm serious. I have no reason to bull about nothing like that. 
That was all police needed to hear. They began moving to extradite Williams from Michigan back to California. In the meantime, detectives tried to strengthen their case. Now that they had words from Williams himself, they were able to pressure his friends into flipping on him. As it turned out, Williams had bragged to multiple friends about the murder. On the hunt for a first-hand account, police questioned Teresa one last time. Under pressure, she revealed that Williams hadn't acted entirely alone that night. There was someone else in the car, a friend of Williams named Michael Alley. Police were itching to close such a high-profile case and offered Alley complete immunity as long as he hadn't been involved in the crime itself. You expect me to believe this? It's all right there in the paper. You can have a lawyer look it over. You sign there and tell us what happened, everything that happened, and you walk away scot-free. And if I say no, if I tell you I'm not a snitch? Then we'll be forced to take a closer look at the events of that night and the reason you never came forward before. Look, we have Lionel on tape. It's all sewn up. We just need you to fill in the gaps. <sighs> I don't know anything. We are drinking that night and I passed out. When I woke up, we're parked in front of some apartments. Lionel said he has to get something from somebody and got out. Did you see where he went? Yeah. I watched him walk down the alley. After a minute, some guy turns the corner. It looked like Lionel was talking to him. Then out of nowhere, he stabs the dude. And then what? And then I looked the hell away. I didn't want to know. Lionel ran back in the car and off we go. That's all, I swear. I wasn't even driving. On January 12, 1978, Lionel Ray Williams was extradited to Los Angeles and charged with Sal Mineo's murder. Going into the trial in March, he oozed cockiness. He seemed pleased with the press coverage and acted confident in front of the cameras. There was plenty of reason for him to feel good about his case. As detectives had predicted, Teresa declined to testify at the last moment. The most reliable and colorful account of Williams' crimes was gone. Instead, authorities had to rely on the tape of Williams admitting he killed Sal, with corroboration from Michael Alley. The prosecutor stitched all of the disparate stories together for the jury. On the night of February 12, 1976, Lionel Williams needed money. He had a shiny red Buick he couldn't pay for, so he went out to get some cash, by any means necessary. After telling his wife Teresa of his intention to rob someone, he left his home and went drinking with his friend, Michael Alley, who you've already heard from. Then he drove to an apartment complex near Altaloma Road. Mr. Alley watched as Williams walked down a darkened street and hid behind some trash cans. When he heard footsteps coming around the corner, Williams struck. Without a word of warning, he leapt out from his hiding place and thrust a hunting knife into the heart of Salminio. One blow was all it took. Williams didn't care whether the man in front of him lived or died. He only wanted a bit of petty cash, and he would have taken everything Mr. Minio had if his victim hadn't screamed for help. Caught in the heat of the crime and possibly still drunk, Mr. Minio's scream startled Williams. He ran down the street and jumped back in the car with Mr. Alley. Then, the two of them fled the scene. In the end, Sal Minio wasn't even killed for the $21 in his pocket. He died for nothing. 
he was the victim of a senseless, savage attack by a remorseless killer. The only thing we can do now is to make sure that the murderer faces justice and is kept from doing any more harm to the innocent. The prosecutor openly admitted that they had trouble directly tying Williams to the crime. But even so, he believed Williams' guilt was obvious. He told reporters, though we were working with circumstantial evidence, it was a mountain of circumstantial evidence and we buried him. He was right. Though Williams' attorneys tried to poke holes in the prosecution, they were overwhelmed by the sheer amount of testimony, all of which matched up. Nearly everyone in Williams' life agreed that he was violent, and more than a few had heard him swear that he'd killed Sal Mineo, not to mention the fact that authorities had him on tape confessing to the crime. On February 13, 1979, just one day after the third anniversary of Sal's death, justice was finally served. Lionel Williams was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 57 years in prison for the murder and other robberies in the area. He was paroled in the 90s. The decision was a small measure of comfort to Sal's loved ones, but even detectives couldn't help but feel slightly hollow when all was said and done. There was no sweet Hollywood ending. Sal's untimely death was nothing more than a random act of violence. But though Sal's death was senseless, his life had been full of purpose. He had gotten a lifetime of experience doing what he loved, performing before the age of 40. He experienced the heights of fame and the lows that came just before self-discovery. Throughout it all, he remained devoted to his craft and to those he loved. Salminio was gone, but justice was done, and his legacy continues to live on. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on the murder of Sal Minio, amongst the many sources we used, we found James Elroy's article in The Hollywood Reporter, Cracking the Case of Murdered Actor Sal Minio, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Solved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solve Murders, True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Kimlin Tran, and Rebecca Thomas. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Uh-huh.